2: Well, the legislative races have been pulled off the May primary, even though the May primary is still on. Why won't the Ohio legislature do the smart thing and postpone the election until we understand where all the lines will be? It's today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn with the cast of regulars, Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, Laura Johnston. It's Thursday. One more day to the work week for you folks.
0: <laughs> For you For folks, us folks <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Chris is always working, <laughs> no, even honestly, when he
3: even when he's on vacation. And, uh, yeah,
2: just the podcast because people like the podcast. Let's get started. We got a good one to begin. We finally have the answer that we have long suspected. Who were the honchos at First Energy who signed off on the bribes that created the biggest scandal in Ohio State House history? and completely corrupted the government at the expense of the people. Layla, their names are now public.
1: Yeah, I think we need like a drum roll. You know, Is this think- coming through? <laughs> <laughs> Attorneys for First Energy Corporation shareholders on Wednesday identified former First Energy CEO Charles Jones and Michael Dowling who had led the company's lobbying efforts as the two who had come up with the scheme to pay off public officials in exchange for the favorable legislation and the regulatory action. These disclosures happened in filings related to the lawsuit that was filed by investors on behalf of the company against the utilities directors and officers that alleging a lack of oversight that led to the bribery scandal. The attorneys for the investors named Jones and Dowling after U.S. District Judge John Adams had given them a noon Wednesday deadline to cough up the names of the people who paid the bribes in the tainted legislation. Adams issued the order because the attorneys had attempted to sidestep his questions by claiming the confidentiality of the mediation process. So basically, the attorneys are saying Jones and Dowling are executives one and two in the deferred prosecution agreement that was filed against First Energy last July, in which the company copped to doing the bad thing and said two bad guys at the company pushed the payments. So it gets
2: the question, one, cheers to Judge Adams for insisting Mm -hmm. this be done. He represented the public. The taxpayers pay his salary. Finally, almost two years in, these, these guys have been identified. It's fascinating to me that the rich guys are the ones that have evaded all the notice and the charging. The politicians have been charged, but the filthy rich guys who sat at the top of the utility remain free and clear, justice is not being served, I don't know why the federal prosecutors are sitting on this, but that's the question. Why, if everybody now knows they were the guys and they have the company admitting it was bribery, aren't they indicted? Layla, you covered courts for some years. <laughs> you saw a lot of charges filed against people on much more flimsy evidence than this.
1: Yeah, I don't understand it either. I mean, they're just kind of like, yeah, we did n- no wrongdoing. Their, their attorneys are saying nothing to see here. But I mean, the prosecution agreement lays it out, it's kind of gift-wrapped here. It, it, it suggests it, it, that the two former officials, who we now know who they are, worked for months to get Householder's help from his push to speakership to the hundreds of thousands of dollars in regulatory payments. They called and texted numerous times about the legislation, according to this agreement. And then, you know, the Ohio House selected Householder a speaker, and then the prosecution agreement shows that Householder texted Jones and said, Thanks for everything. It was historic. I mean, <laughs> the same day, you know, another person texted Jones and Dowling, big win in the Ohio speaker vote. I mean, this there it's gift-wrapped. I just don't understand uh, what is the, you know, what what's what's holding it up? Why well,
2: it's, it's it's breeding cynicism. It's protecting these guys. Because <laughs> I am hearing from people in the public that now believe they won't be charged, that their money talks and that they the justice is not blind to the cash and the riches. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're sending notes saying, I, we don't get it. I mean, you got a bunch of politicians who are charged and good, they should be, but what kind of justice system do you have in this country when somebody who's filthy rich just gets out of it? So, I, I mean, it it, it I, in the beginning when people said, do you expect there'll be charges? It was like, of course we expect there'll be charges. The, the company's pleaded guilty. And now I'm saying... I don't know. The federal, the new federal prosecutor just doesn't seem like he's that interested in this case or bringing people to justice, the trial. It's interesting
1: because I do feel like you see that often in state court, like how much justice can you afford? You know, how can you, I mean, you can often buy your way out of a lot of things, but with such a high profile case, you would think that it would be so obvious that you're letting these guys skate,
3: you but know, it's 20 I,
2: months later. It's okay. 20 months since this dented the public consciousness with the raid of Larry Householder's home, which means the investigation is more than two years old. And yet, the, 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 I, don't, I don't even know who the prosecutor is down there since Dave DeViller's left, and they're probably glad I can't think of their name because they're doing <laughs> a terrible job. And <laughs> it, this, something should change. They are breeding a, a cynicism about the justice system in Ohio because Mm -hmm. they're not bringing these people to account. They claim they're innocent. The only way they're going to be able to prove this, go to court. You know, you want to go in and get a jury to buy that you didn't bribe people, even though your company says you did? Go ahead, good luck to you. But let's get it before a jury, before time expires on this thing. I mean, there's a statute of limitations, isn't there?
0: Probably. Yeah, so -hmm.
2: I guess the prosecutors may look to let that expire and go, oopsie. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Cleveland has seen an outsized share of fatal accidents resulting from drivers getting on highways in the wrong direction. And now we have a new tool to battle such crashes. Lisa, I've always been baffled by how this can happen so often. It's pretty difficult to get on the highway in the wrong direction. But in multiple spots in in the Cleveland area, we do it. What is this new tool and where will they use it?
0: Yeah, the Ohio Department of Transportation is installing a system of sensors that sense when a vehicle is going the wrong way on an entrance ramp or an exit ramp. And so what happens when they detect that two wrong way signs bordered with flashing lights will flash, you know, very quickly to let them know they're going the wrong way. If they ignore that, there is a second detector further down the ramp that triggers a do not enter and wrong way signs that also flash with red lights to alert people to what's what they're doing and as this happens these sensors send an alert to ODOT Traffic Management Center in Columbus, which then alerts local law enforcement officers to be aware that somebody might be going down the freeway the wrong way. Here in the Cleveland area, they'll be installed along 22 miles of I-71 and I-90 between West 150th Street and East 140th Streets. There will be 50 detection devices at 25 locations because we have two on each ramp. And they were, they chose this area based on a report of wrong way crashes from 2016 to 2019. And interestingly enough, they, it, as part of the study, they also calculated the number of bars and restaurants near exit ramps to, you know, because people obviously leaving a bar drunk might get on and go the wrong way.
2: Well, the worst one seems to be that West 25th street entrance yeah. to the shoreway. I mean, it seems like we've had that happen a lot. And I guess if you're, you're coming at that from the north that can seem confusing because there's, mm-hmm. it's a left turn, and it's, I guess people just get confused, especially, as you said, if they've been drinking. Uh, and once they're up there, they're going 60, 70, 75 miles an hour with oncoming traffic at the same speed. So when there is a crash, nobody walks away from that. These are devastating crashes. Yeah, and I can't on. imagine anything more frightening when you're rolling down the highway, at sixty-five, seventy miles an hour, to see a car coming straight at you <sighs> in the opposite direction—that's got to be.
1: They better, they better make these signs really big and really bright. I mean, because these folks are most of the time pretty hammered, and you know, if, you, if they're gonna just like cruise right on past it, it's just not gonna register. I, I hope that they, they thought they were very thoughtful in the design of these signs. It right? looks like
0: they're, yeah, I saw some video of it yesterday. It's it's in use somewhere else in Ohio, and they looked like the signs are the same size, but it looks like they've been placed higher. And then these lights flash like every second. I mean, so it's like, bing, 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 you know, these red lights around these signs saying, do not enter
1: wrong way. And so, they're yeah. you know, readable at night, like you can read the sign clearly. I don't know. Well, I I I, I don't know. I think the flashing lights. Have their headlights
3: on, like you're driving.
2: Let's hope because what what we have now is not working. The signage doesn't work. People keep doing it. So let's hope that they've done the the science and that this will reduce it. I do like the idea of the sensors as well as a backup, so that if you do get the sense. You might be able to get a patrol car up there before the accident happens. There's Mm -hmm. not a whole lot of time, though. I mean, the trick is keeping them off to begin with. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Okay, Laura, what were the highlights of Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's State of the State Address Wednesday, if we can say anything he said was actually a highlight?
3: Yeah, I mean, the enthusiasm in your voice might be a little misplaced because um, I... I listened to the entire thing. I didn't really take away anything that I would say, oh, that was really a highlight, but um, he was big on the future. He repeated this refrain that he sees in Ohio where, and he kept saying that I see in Ohio where, and it sounded like a children's book, like goodnight, Ohio. Like it was big on vision, it was short on specifics. Um, He said, we have opportunities before us that come once in a lifetime, so we must seize that. Ohio, this is our moment. Our moment for, I don't know, he he did focus on mental health support. He wants an Ohio where mental health is not um, looked down on, that people are getting the help they need, that they're not criminalized for it. Obviously, he talked about kids and he talked a lot about highway safety and and some gun reforms, though he didn't call them reforms and he didn't bring up his strong Ohio gun plan that he had originally um, tried to get the legislature to support.
2: Yeah, I think these are much more interesting in the first year of a new governor because they're laying out a vision that they have for the state, which he did back three three years ago. But now he's running for reelection. He has shown that he's very afraid of the assault he's getting from the far right. Mm-hmm. And so he's done things that don't really fit with what he said that first year. I mean, he talked about plenty about his gun safe plan, but then he signed the bill that wipes out the need for a permit to carry a concealed weapon uh, and really ducked discussing it and did not discuss it yesterday.
3: So yeah, there it's... weren't a lot of things that you could say were controversial or taking a stand on anything. He called for a permanent state funding of police training. Uh, he he doesn't have anything introduced, just like the mental health. But how could you say anything against giving care for mental health or making sure that your police are well trained or making sure that kids have you know the mentorships that they need to grow up with support. I mean, all of these things are hopefully everybody could get behind he did say he wanted to work with lawmakers on an investment program for 32 appalachian counties in southwestern ontario or southwest southeastern ohio a comparatively poor part of the state and that would focus on downtown redevelopment expanding broadband and workforce development as well as student wellness in schools and anti-addiction programs that was about the most specifics i think I heard from DeWine and he, he talks about everything. Like, oh, he did bring up the state fair, which was not in Andrew Tobias's um, state of the state bingo, where you, like, if he mentions Fran, you get to, you know, put down your bingo and see how fast you can get that. Um, but then he, then he pivoted to highway safety, and I was like, oh, I did not see this coming. Distracted we, we, driving. Highway safety.
2: We should point out that for much of his term, when he spoke to Ohio, it was with questions from reporters, challenging Mm -hmm. him on issues, that all those wine with the wines were a wonderful way for people to hear him answer things that could make him uncomfortable. This was not that. This was him writing a speech, giving a speech while he's campaigning for another run, so it did not have much of the flair that we saw in those wine with the wine sessions.
3: Nope. Lots of applause. (laughs)
1: <laughs> he should have just showed up with a big old box of guns. Hand them out.
0: <laughs> no, no, no.
2: That's he, what he was he all You
3: did, did Get a end gun. it by saying he was planting a dogwood tree on the Capitol lawn as a symbol of Ohio's future. I mean, for three years oh, into... Oh, to, oh, to, oh, to I'm so sorry. The danger you. of that
2: is there is an uh, uh, illness that hits Ohio dogwood trees. I had one and it killed it. There, there are healthy dogwood trees in in Ohio, but it's a risky thing to plant because if that's your symbol for the future and it
1: gets hit oh, by that plague of guys. We've got to make sure the state house landscapers yeah, are funny. on
3: that dogwood tree all the time making sure it's safe. Well, but-
0: and... <laughs> there's a religious significance to dogwood too Mm -hmm. because the red tips of the four petals are said to you know signify the stigmata so there might be a religious and i've always heard that it's
3: an east you know of course easter with rebirth or everything but um i thought it was interesting how much he concentrated on the future considering this was you know he'd been in office for three years he didn't do a lot of pointing at successes of the past other than intel which is very recent
2: all right, I would argue this conversation about the state of the state is more interesting than the actual state of the state. <laughs> you are listening. I mean,
3: next time we should do live commentary. <laughs> to,
2: yeah, right, yeah. To, to today in Ohio. Marsha Fudge, head of the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, is on the warpath about how appraisals for homes owned by black people are lower than for similar homes owned by white people. Layla, the first time I had any education about this issue was when Eric Foster mm-hmm. wrote a horrifying column about how how he had to take any sign that the owners of his house were black before yeah. he put it up for sale. This is a much bigger issue Especially in Northeast Ohio, and Marsha Fudge, the former Northeast Ohio Congresswoman, really wants to end it. What uh, yeah. what did she say yesterday?
1: It's funny you should bring up Eric's column because that is the first thing I thought of uh, when I read this story. And it uh, opened with the the um, the recounting of a very similar story that somebody told at this at this hearing at at the White House. So a, a September report from Freddie Mac found that. Appraisals for home purchases in majority black and majority Latino neighborhoods were roughly twice as likely to result in a value below the amount a buyer was willing to pay for the property compared to appraisals in predominantly white neighborhoods. A February study from Fannie Mae found that white-owned homes are much more likely than black-owned homes to be appraised at values that exceed algorithmic predictions." And Marsha Fudge said that her own home in Warrensville Heights is undervalued because it's in a black community. And she said she's losing hundreds of thousands of dollars in equity because of bias in the appraisal process. So at this White House event, she laid out her plan to end that racial bias in appraisals. And the report of her interagency task force on property appraisal and valuation equity calls for agent federal agencies to enhance oversight over the appraisal industry, to identify better, and redress discriminatory appraisals. It also encourages providing homeowners and homebuyers with information on effective steps that they can take when they receive a lower-than-expected valuation, cultivating better training among appraisers, and making efforts to diversify the, the profession that is pretty much almost 100% white. A task force action plan lays out measures to remove unnecessary educational and experience requirements that make it very difficult for underrepresented groups to become appraisers and a need to strengthen anti-bias fair housing and fair lending training of existing appraisers. And very interesting, the action plan also calls for ensuring the algorithms that appraisers use don't rely on biased data that could replicate past Discrimination. And it calls for developing an aggregated database of federal appraisal data to better study and understand and address appraisal bias. So, yeah. Let, there but
2: you let, go. Me, let me ask this, though, because appraisals are largely supposed to be based on market value. And according to Eric's column, his real estate people told him you won't get as high a price for your home if you if there are signs that it's owned by black owners so so forget the appraisal part the the price of the house that the market will bear isn't as high if if the buyer knows the owner is black how do you deal with that
1: i don't know but but you know there is this uh there was one homeowner who uh, offered testimony very similar to Eric's, who he said that he and his wife wanted to expand their home in Upper Arlington, Ohio, and they, you know, during the pandemic, and the the banks that they were seeking these home equity loans from kept kicking back these super low estimates, and they were told, you know, you need to quote whitewash your home, and he ended up taking his children away from his home while they appraised this house, and they got a, a value. Two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars higher That's than amazing. was initially provided, which is stunning. And that you know that com- you know, along with Eric's story of how he found himself doing the exact same thing and found that his home sold for higher than he initially thought. You know, initially he was told it would sell for. Um, really, is is uh, you know supports that that. Um, you know what these the findings yeah. of the study say. Uh, it's uh, r- that's absolutely stunning. Well, it
2: was one Eric's column was one of the most heart crushing columns I think mm-hmm. I've ever read. I it just it breaks your heart to to read that. And uh, g- good for Marcia Fudge trying to get ahead of this, but there's more work to be done because the market itself, if buyers at large are offering less money for such a bogus reason, seems like there's a lot of public education that yeah. needs to be done as well. <laughs>
1: Senator Sherrod Brown, who chairs the Senate Committee Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs, is going to follow up with a hearing today on strengthening oversight and equity in the appraisal process. So one more step happening this it, week.
3: I, I, just, I feel so for these homeowners because it is hard enough to sell your house, right? Mm. It's a very difficult, very stressful, frustrating process. And to have to change everything about it because you're trying to appeal to the bias of unknown homeowners like that's just really sad
2: okay you're listening to today in ohio perhaps the best known example of the damage caused by the may 30th 2020 riots in downtown cleveland was the wrecking of colossal cupcakes on wednesday the bill came due for the man who did that wrecking lisa what was it
0: 24-year-old Tondre Buchanan will serve four years in federal prison for the damage he did and the robbery of colossal cupcakes during the protests on May 30th at quickly turned into riots. This was May 30th, 2020. Prosecutors are also seeking $260,000 in restitution. The owner of Colossal Cupcake said it took 10 months to fix all the damage, and her store was closed during that time. Um, U.S. District Judge Donald Nugent set a hearing for May 11th to consider the damage amount. Um, Buchanan was, of course, convicted on December 1st of robbery and obstruction of justice. He is the first person to be tried in connection with the May 30th incident. Um, And there was actually, you know, it it was pretty clear it was him. I mean, there was a photo on the front page of the Plain Dealer and on Cleveland.com that showed him brandishing a stool and breaking in the front window of Colossal Cupcakes. But he broke in and entered the store. There were employees there. They were working. They ran to the back and locked themselves in a bathroom. And then he used a stool from the store, the stool in the photo, to break a second window. And when he did that, a bunch of looters came into colossal cupcakes and just walked out with it, whatever they could carry.
2: Yeah, he's one of the people that they could identify. I think, I, I don't know that anybody ever was charged for what happened in the Heinen's downtown. That place was completely mm-hmm. trashed as well. Uh, and and there are, there are some, and we, we were talking about it on our editorial board uh, a month or so ago, that believe that the riders who did the damage were not being charged or were escaping justice, which just isn't mm-hmm. true. They worked very hard to try to identify them and bring those they could identify to justice, and he's one of the better known because of that photo with the the stool in his hands. Uh, so he's going away to prison, and I imagine there'll be a few more after this.
0: Although, just to, just as a little end note here, Buchanan, when you know at the sentencing, says, you know, he's quote, "I still have no idea what got into me." Unquote, and he's terribly remorseful. Well.
2: I, I mean, I think part of what got into people was the way the police responded to the protesters. I mean, they yes. started just firing upon them with less than lethal uh, projectiles, which, you know, we've documented heightened the, the intensity of the passions. It's the, the police response to this thing was an utter failure. They weren't ready. They hadn't done the intelligence and helped exacerbate things and make it get out of control. There's no excuse though, for picking up a stool, smashing in a window and terrorizing people inside the store.
3: I, I agree, but can I just point out four years and obviously a whole lot of scrutiny. And then <laughs> what we talked about earlier, Chuck Jones, First Energy, Sam Randazzo, like does not feel like a fair justice Uh, system
2: right now Uh, right that's a great point Laura I mean uh, those they they completely corrupted the state government system to get rich and they're sitting at home completely unfettered by even a charge yet it says everything about the justice system you're listening to today in Ohio what's an orphan gas or oil well and how many do we have in Cuyahoga County and why might that be a problem Laura you're our environmental person (laughs)
3: This is a fascinating story from Peter Krauss. I had no idea how many orphan wells we have, and that's a well that's no longer producing, but no idea how old it is, or who is responsible for it, which is, really disconcerting, right? But there's about 330 wells of that in in Cuyahoga County, a bunch more in the surrounding areas. Some of them go back to the days of John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. The state created this orphan well program in 1976. So since then, we've been much better about knowing where the wells are. But there was a house in Westlake that literally is five feet the, the walls of the house from an orphan well. So the U.S. Department of the Interior is uh, is providing billions of dollars in grants to plug wells across the country, and Ohio could see up to $634 million through 2035 to deal with this problem.
2: All right, let me ask you questions you can't answer. So if this well is is 15 feet or 5 feet away from my house, is gas and oil coming out of it? I mean, if it's... It, there could it,
3: be. There could be immediate risk. And if you have a strong leak of oil and gas, if you have an odor, you could plug that in an emergency basis. But a lot of these are not... Kids cannot fall down them. They're like five inches across. Uh, But the wells are graded and prioritized with uh, how fast they need to be plugged. And they've got money for about a thousand of the 20,000 in the state right now.
2: So if you have a leaking gas well and you're mowing your lawn near it and and it's no. leaking, you could create a major problem, it sounds like. This is frightening stuff.
3: It's... It is frightening. And there is no record of a lot of these. I mean, there could be more. I mean, if, if they've been around since Rockefeller and they weren't keeping track of them, who knows exactly where they are? That's the scary part.
2: Okay. Good story by Pete Kress. Check it out on Cleveland.com. It's Today in Ohio. Have the Cleveland Browns responded to the harsh criticism they received this week over the trade for quarterback Deshaun Watson, who faces 22 lawsuits accusing him of sexual assault and misconduct? Layla, a group that represents women who are the victims of sexual abuse, blasted the Browns for this. What did the Browns say?
1: So, I mean, it does not appear that the Browns have responded yet, right? Is, am I am I wrong I, in that? No,
2: I, that's the that's what we're emphasizing here. They have not responded.
1: Okay, I was gonna say i just was I was looking and looking. I haven't seen anything, and they really should because this situation is really getting worse. They've, they've been blasted by the Cleveland Rape Crisis Center, who on Tuesday said they've now received over 1,700 donations after news of the trade. And, and they've gotten calls to the crisis hotline, hotline which have increased by more than 130 percent, with hundreds of sexual assault survivors reaching out to the center in need of support because of the trade. Other organizations have spoken out, including the Washington, DC-based National Center on Sexual Exploitation, which released an open letter to the Haslams about the decision to trade for Watson. And in their letter, they said, quote, At present, it strains credulity to believe that the Cleveland Browns and the NFL as a whole are in any way concerned about issues of sexual violence and exploitation when we witness your franchise choose to promote and elevate an alleged serial sexual exploiter. The National Center on Sexual Exploitation also posed a series of questions to the Browns, including if the Browns had any system or policy to protect women against sexual abuse, if they made it a condition of Watson's employment to refrain from visiting massage parlors or hiring massage therapists, if the Browns will allow him to have one-on-one interactions with female employees, and if they'll suspend him if any judgments are rendered against him in the civil cases that are pending. So crickets... From the Browns, we are waiting.
2: I, yeah, I think the Browns and the Haslam's took a calculated risk that yes, they're going to get blasted for this decision, but they want the quarterback who can win. What I what I suspect is they grossly underestimated this the lasting power of this outrage, and they're going to have to take some steps to correct this. This isn't crisis public relations. This is a crisis. Uh, They're going to lose fans, and it's just this is not going to go well unless they get proactive. And they've been very quiet. It took them days before they issued a statement, after they made the trade. They're not saying anything now, and I think they're just hoping, if they keep their heads down, this will go away. Do you think it will? No,
1: no. Well, but can I— Ladies, what do you think? Well, let
0: me just drop a counterpoint in here. The, the, The key word here is alleged. Yes, there are 22 cases. Now it's moved to civil court, but he has not been indicted or convicted. So maybe the Browns are taking a a calculated risk on that. I'm just trying to be devil's advocate here. I'm not condoning anything. But, you know, we often say that you're innocent until you're proven guilty. You know, we've said it in the press. We've said it, you know, everywhere. So why aren't we giving this young black man the same benefit of the doubt? Despite the 22 cases, I'm just throwing it out there.
2: No, oh, you, you. It's a good point, and maybe that's what they're doing. Uh, I love when you play I'm devil's sure advocate, Lisa. Doing. You I'm keep sure. us honest. It's a good, it's great that you're on this podcast. I we'll,
3: I I totally understand Lisa's point. I do think that they did take a calculated risk here, and I believe if he starts winning, there's a lot of Clevelanders that are just gonna. As long as nothing else happens, like if we don't hear any more accusations if nothing happens in Cleveland I think there are a whole lot of Browns fans that are going to be like yeah yeah we want a Super Bowl like I I just I don't think it's going to stay in the forefront of people's minds in August if we start winning
2: okay you're listening to today in Ohio it does it for a Thursday come on back Friday for a wrap-up of the news thanks Lisa thanks Leila. thanks Laura thank you for listening to this podcast